Hello, welcome to series two of Shooting Azimuths, a podcast chiefly devised to allow me to chat to the people I admire the most in education. This series features the speakers who will be addressing the Embley Education Conference that takes place on the 14th of April. To find out more about the conference and to book your place, please visit www.embley.org.uk forward slash conference. In today's podcast, we welcome Caroline Noakes, a Member of Parliament, a former Minister and the current Chair of the Women and Equalities Select Committee. So welcome, Caroline. It's a, it's delightful to have you with us today. And I think we'll just go straight to it. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So a uh, Member of Parliament for the last 13 years. And during that time, I have held various government roles. So three positions uh, in different departments. And for the last three years, as chair of a select committee. So in effect, I've sat on both sides of the fence as a government minister, getting to be very involved in setting and delivering policy. And as chair of a select committee, your job is not to set policy, but rather to scrutinise those who are. I think that gives you a very interesting perspective. And I have always said, um, as a government minister, the most important thing that you could do was build a team around yourself. Mm. It was uh, fascinating for me and and remains fascinating to hear the discussions about how the civil service works. Uh, Some of my colleagues are not afraid of discussing uh, what they see as the failings in the civil service. What I always found were civil servants who wanted to have clear direction. They wanted to have confidence that the agenda had been set and the agenda was going to be followed through. But uh, you couldn't achieve anything without them wanting and feeling included in, in, in the mission. And so I always tried that as a minister to make sure that my team were uh, committed, determined. They worked phenomenally hard. I get very angry when mm. I hear criticisms of the civil service not working hard. I was stunned by the hours, mm. particularly my private office, would put in the effort and the commitment, the energy. Mm. Um, but it was very much about making sure that everyone felt included. And as I always said, if you know if something went wrong, I wanted to know about it. Uh, don't yeah. be afraid to tell me that something has gone wrong because ultimately it's the the bear traps that you can't see that you don't know about that will be the ones that that take you down so much better fess up early uh so i think to be a decent leader you have to be open you have to have a team around you who know that if they uh, have made a mistake or if they think that something is headed in the wrong direction they're quick to tell you um i think perhaps less so as a select committee chair Mm. um i think there our agenda very much is to be as effective as we can in holding the government to account. Mm-hmm. And so there's, uh, and within a select committee, you've got very competing interests. So half of just over half the select committee are conservative members. Mm-hmm. The other, um, you know, it's probably 60, 40 split. The other 40% are opposition members. Their job is to uh, criticise at every turn. Uh, mm-hmm. My job, I would say now is, largely to make sure that uh, through scrutiny we make things better. Yeah. 
I think uh, the committee sometimes in Parliament sometimes remind me of heads of department meeting when, when people come in to ask, not necessarily to ask questions, but to make statements. And I have to say, uh, chairing the committee is um, difficult and mm. it's very obvious. And I'll use a very good example that we recently were looking at uh, the Scottish Gender Recognition Reform Bill. I think I did a very, very poor job of chairing that committee because it just got dominated by one member who made a great deal more statements than asked questions. Mm. And and part of it is, yeah, people want their moment in the sun and you mm. have to harness that and make sure that everybody gets a, a fair share of the limelight and that that they are sticking to the agenda that the committee has and not so, veering off on their own. So from what you're saying to me, Caroline, I, th I think you come across as a very affiliative leader, as, as a very reflective leader as well. Do you think your style of leadership has evolved during your time in Parliament? I've certainly become a more confident leader over the course mm. of the last 13 years. Uh, and if you had asked me these questions 13 years ago, I would have said I'm not a leader. Um, mm. uh, the stark reality about Parliament is that every single one of those 650 MPs is a leader in some way or other, mm -hmm. although they may not recognize it. Um, I always say it's 650 small businesses who are all kind of collaborating a bit, but not very much. Um, but yeah, definitely, I would say that I have recognized, particularly my time in government gave me the opportunity to understand the importance of uh, inclusivity, making sure that people uh, felt that they were part of it, um, and, and not to be too dictatorial not to not to sort of wander in and want to stamp your boots all over everything I think that doesn't help and certainly I would reflect on having watched other colleagues do that mm. particularly ineffective yeah I get you fine and if you were to say I mean obviously don't have to name any names um, if you don't want to but who who are the individuals or what kind of individuals have influenced your leadership and style um, leadership style and approach over time, so I think either, either positively or negatively. <laughs> and, and you can do both. So look, I've worked mm. with three different secretaries of state, all very different to each other. Uh, and the first secretary of state I worked with was Damien Green um, as at the DWP and then at the cabinet office. Damien was very much in favour of allowing people uh, you know, you give them wings and let them fly. So he would give you a massive amount of independence, let you make your own decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and that was great, a brilliant start for me. And that was my first 18 months as a minister. The second 18 months, I had a few months with Andrew Rudd, who was very similar to Damien in that respect. Uh, she would let you make your own decisions in uh, the areas uh, which you were responsible for, much more contentious. Uh, so I was dealing with immigration then. So that was very, I would argue, although Amber would give me freedom, the whole thing was micromanaged by Theresa May um, from on top. And uh, and then Saj uh, was very much in the, the Theresa May school of motoring. So I think in my sort of final uh, time as immigration minister, I wasn't empowered to make a single decision. He did them all, uh, which is very frustrating. And I think it taught me about the importance of effective delegation, give people control over the bits that, uh, that, that they're capable of controlling. Um, and, and I look back on that now and think, actually, you know, it, it, it's fascinating to watch the different styles. And if you were to look at prime ministers, and this is probably a little bit too controversial, 
but interesting nonetheless. So look, what do we want from our prime minister? We want somebody who is incredibly intelligent and able and can make decisions that are, uh, you know, instinctively, politically, practically the right ones. Mm-hmm. We want prime ministers who are hardworking. I always hold up as an example of that. Theresa May, incredibly diligent, mm-hmm. uh, maybe not much of an instinctive politician, but she would dig down into all of the detail. So almost invariably would uh, would come up with the right answer in the end, but from a very, very detailed perspective. Yeah. She was thorough. Very thorough, incredibly thorough. Um, and and you also want your prime ministers to be charismatic. Now, look, mm-hmm. I always say Theresa was very thorough, uh, not very charismatic. Mm-hmm. Boris Johnson, very charismatic, not very thorough. And yeah. I don't think that that's any great secret. Um, and David Cameron, both charismatic and thorough, I, I, and much more of the three, probably the best instinctive politician. Yeah. Um, and and I can't really comment on Liz Truss. She was not with us for very long. And uh, Rishi at the moment, still very early days. Uh, yeah. And I think unfair to uh, for me to cast any judgment at the moment. Um, but I think from my perspective, that really taught me the importance of being a, being over your brief, understanding, uh, I would say absolutely everything, as much as you possibly can. Yeah. And but also the need to take people with you to make them feel, you know, as if this was a shared agenda that we were all working towards. Um, and arguably with all of our prime ministers over the course of history, you know, there's there have been bits, bits in in each of them where you can see that they were taking people with them. They weren't taking people with them. They were uh, diligent. They weren't diligent. Um, and I think fundamentally, everybody who's part of your team just wants to have confidence that the man or woman at the top yeah. uh, has the necessary attributes. And you know, that's probably been part of our problems and the lack of sort of stability over the last few years. It's interesting, Caroline, you've mentioned confidence a couple of times now. What, what do you draw confidence from when it comes to leadership? So I always, I'm always very wary mm. of those who are too, uh, too bombastic. I like quiet confidence. Mm. I like... Uh, I like to be able to ask my leaders a question and then have the answer at their fingertips. Uh, I can always remember one of my previous colleagues or current colleague um, saying to me when I was his PPS and we were going into a delegated legislation committee. Uh, it's important that you go into that room having more information than everybody else in there. Now, that was the, perhaps the epitome of a control freak or maybe I should just say a very diligent individual. But I want I want leadership that has has the facts, that has the detail, that is over the detail, so that when I ask a question, when anybody else asks a question, um, it's available. There isn't a I'll get back to you mentality. And if you don't know the answer, you just put your hands up and say, I, I, don't, I don't know, know. The answer. absolutely. Exactly. I'll go I do not like, <laughs> there's, there's a brilliant book, Bluff Your Way in Politics. Um, yeah. And actually, that's probably the absolutely worst piece of advice. That's much, it's much more authentic way to approach any problems, isn't it? Look, yeah. I know enough about this. Let me go and find out. And then I can make a properly informed decision. That's great. Caroline, we're, we're going to stop here for a break. Hello, everyone. I'm Cliff Canning, headmaster at Embley, a wonderful school in stunning grounds near Romsey in Hampshire. On the 14th of April, we'll be hosting our annual education conference. I'm very excited to share with you the wealth of knowledge and expertise that our speakers have to offer. The theme of the conference is leadership at every level. And let me tell you, it's not just a catchy slogan, it's a call to action. 
Leadership is essential in every aspect of our lives, whether it's the classroom, the boardroom or the sports field. And that's why we've brought together some of the most accomplished leaders in the field to share their stories and insights. But don't take my word for it. Have a listen to our podcast and hear for yourself the valuable insights and advice they have to offer. And once you have a sense of that, head across to our website at www.embley.org.uk forward slash conference and book your place. I look forward to seeing you. So welcome back. Caroline, now you're coming to Embley uh, on the 14th of April, and we're very looking forward to uh, welcoming you for the Embley Education Conference. Um, now, if, if you are, if you imagine that you are thinking about addressing uh, the, the, the teachers and the leaders, the school leaders that are coming to the conference, what advice would you give somebody who is just starting out uh, in a leadership role in a school? So I think uh, my reflection, particularly in the education sphere, is that any school is a sum of all of its parts. So much as I said uh, in my own roles in government, it was important to build a team around you that were travelling in the same direction, that shared the ethos um, and understood the the direction of where you were going. I think absolutely the same is true in education. I would always reflect that I am particularly blessed in this constituency, this part of the world, is that by and large, the school heads I have encountered have been um, outstanding. Uh, We've got some churn, and I think that's an interesting period. And I could reflect upon that in a whole range of the secondary schools. We've seen changes of heads within the last 12 months. And I think that that is always difficult for uh, education establishments, change Um, is always an unsettling period. But I think the most important thing is that, you know, whilst the uh, head sets the tone, they set the direction, um, I'm always very struck at sort of lower levels within a school. And when I say lower levels, I do not mean Mm -hmm. uh, the entry uh, teacher. I mean Mm -hmm. the deputy heads, the heads of department, the heads of year. Actually, in a in a good school, you will see shining stars in all of that, but they will all all share kind of a common purpose and a sense of direction for a school. And do you see any challenges coming over the horizon um, uh, for school leaders? Look, so I'm currently chair of the Women and Equalities Select mm. Committee, and I think one of the big challenges that I would reflect upon for schools over the course of the last couple of years and undoubtedly going forward is around diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And we still have some enormous challenges uh, culturally in society with uh, discrimination, with racism, with misogyny, uh, with some really difficult challenges around uh, transgender issues, Mm -hmm. which I know schools are already having to face up to and understand how they can best support Mm -hmm. individual pupils going forward. That is incredibly complex and a very toxic political debate. And Mm -hmm. I think at at the heart of that, I always tell people there are individual people, individual pupils who desperately need support, understanding and uh, tolerance. Mm -hmm. And I think by making Um, transgender issues, such a toxic political football, some of my colleagues would do well to reflect that they're not helping uh, the 14-year-old child. 
Correct. Yeah. We have to look at, at from the perspective of the individual. Absolutely right. Do you think schools are doing enough in this area? It's a challenge that I often raise with school heads when I meet them, um, largely to to take the temperature, to see what they're actually doing and to understand the scale of the challenges they face. I'm blessed, and I know that, that I have a number of school heads on speed dial who I can literally just drop a, a text message or email or call, and they will give me their take on issues. Um, and look, I'm conscious that one of the schools in my constituency has made its uniform more inclusive, uh, a number of them have put in place gender neutral toilets, but all of them are of a, are aware of the challenges that they face in this space. And so, look, are our schools all doing enough? Mm-hmm. Probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is enough? And I would much rather that schools set a, a framework policy, but then address individual pupils' needs. Um, sympathetically with understanding and perhaps without being too kind of hidebound by a policy and just looked at the child as an individual rather than a a problem. Should this be reflected in policy, Caroline? Um, Perhaps if I ask this question in a different way, what, what, what do you see the role of government being? in supporting school leaders to, to to achieve the sort of changes you've just been discussing? Uh, so I'm going to give you the political answer and then I'm going to give you um, kind of the practical answer. So look, head teachers across my constituency have all made the point to me that what they want from the DfE mm-hmm. is clarity. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's absolutely imperative. From my perspective, it is very obvious that at the top of government, there is not clarity as to how they wish to see these issues addressed. Mm-hmm. So um, I have made the point very publicly that I think all schools should have gender neutral toilet facilities for their pupils. Mm-hmm. And there are government secretaries of state and government who believe that that should not be the case and that there should be girls lose and boys lose. Now, let's look at that from the practical perspective of do I want a 14 year old non-binary pupil in any school Mm -hmm. to feel comfortable and safe about the facilities that they have to use. Of course I do. Mm -hmm. So I think um, what what government needs to do centrally is to make some pretty tough decisions within itself as to whether it wishes to have a culture war Mm -hmm. or whether it wishes to make sure that children are supported. Would it be easier if government stopped looking at this issue from 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 the binary perspective of biology? I mean, gender is gender is a spectrum, isn't it? Um, so look, I don't I don't regard gender as binary, um, mm. and that causes uh, causes some of my colleagues to get very angry with me that I won't see it as binary, um, and and the government I fear sees it as far too binary. And look, there are difficult areas. Of course, there are difficult areas, and of course, I want uh, there to be single sex spaces in areas like women's refuges. Mm-hmm. And of course, I want sport to be fair. Um, And I think this is all incredibly difficult to both legislate for and to implement practically. But I fear that the government is getting itself into a complete mess uh, by insisting upon 
biological sex in a whole range of areas, when in fact, uh, in so doing, you cause huge distress and discomfort for, albeit a small proportion of the population. I think it's a difference, isn't it, between between developing policy for the world as it ought to be, according to your views, and developing policy for the world as it is, according to objective reality. And objective reality is that gender is a spectrum, is not a binary. Uh, and my message to all colleagues who tell me that I'm wrong and that gender is binary, uh, I invite them to have the experience that I did as a select committee chair, talking to a group of uh, trans teenagers, mm-hmm which had to be done in private session uh, because you cannot take evidence from uh, minors. And we were conscious that this was an incredibly sensitive area. But those young people, the vast majority of whom were Mm -hmm. non-binary, talking about their experiences and talking about policies that are implemented uh, or policies drafted on paper and then have to be implemented in the real world, it certainly was incredibly enlightening for me to actually recognise, and particularly in school settings, you have to deal in realities. It is no good having policies that are absolutely perfect on paper if they uh, then run into conflict once they're implemented in a real situation. And so yeah, they implode when contact with yeah, reality. Absolutely. Contact with reality can be very, very difficult. Indeed. So fantastic. But my last question, uh, Caroline, for you, then, if what do you think then, given what you just said about, and I'm going to take it that understanding, understanding the needs of young people is going to be essential. Yeah. But what other things, in addition to understanding the needs of young people, what other qualities do you think a school leader should be able to display? So I should imagine that school leaders have to be incredibly resilient. incredibly uh, diligent and hardworking and able able to be flexible and adaptable. Um, and look, uh, when I reflect upon every head teacher I ever had um, as a pupil, there, there was a spectrum there, okay, um, ranging from the absolute sort of iron rod of discipline to uh, a rather kindly nun who just wanted you to achieve the best that you possibly could. And I think um, from my perspective, I was I was most at home at a school where I felt nurtured. And I think that that is the biggest challenge, particularly now. Uh, 21st century children are incredibly challenging they've come through covid they're beset with the difficulties of a life lived on social media mm-hmm. and i think the most important thing any school leader can do is to instill in those young people a belief that they are cared for and that their teachers and head teachers want them to achieve the very best that they can for themselves here here well, Caroline, on that note, thank you very much for uh, coming on the podcast and we look forward to seeing you on the 14th of April. Take care. Bye. Thank nice you so to much. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Shooting Azimuths. Please don't forget to check the Embley Education Conference website www.embley.org.uk forward slash conference.
and subscribe to this podcast to be notified when the next podcast episode is available. Goodbye for now.